Hey guys, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, just stick a hand up nice and high. We'll make sure that you get one or use your phone, your app, your iPad, whatever the case may be. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we're going to be. There's some things that, you know, we really are, there's a hand down here for someone with a Bible, if someone can get that, that would be awesome. Um, We really are people of habit in a lot of ways, creatures of habit, and sometimes embarrassingly so. You ever find yourself like returning to something over and over that you just swore you're just never going to do this thing again? I was trying to think of some examples of that. Um, Walmart is one for me. Um, I have never... Well, many times I've walked into Walmart thinking this is a good idea. Every time I've walked out of Walmart going that was a bad idea. It's just, it's just, I know it's cheaper, I know all that stuff, I get it, but I've never walked out of a Walmart thinking that was a positive experience. It was just always, I come out frustrated and in the flesh. It's not good for me. Um, Taco Bell is another one, right? They come up with stuff that seems like good idea. Dorito tacos? How did we not think of this? We've, we've put a man on the moon, but we didn't, took us this long to think Dorito tacos. Like, okay, let's, let's try that. And then you eat it, and it seems like a good idea for about an hour, <laughs> right? There's things like that that seem like really good ideas, and then we, so what we do? We go, okay, I got to remember this. It's not a good idea. I'm not going to do that again. And then you, inevitably, we end up returning to some of those same sorts of things. That's what today's message is really about. Um, If you're here and visiting us here at Heritage Christian Fellowship, we are really stoked to have you guys. It's a pretty unique Sunday for you to be here on a lot of different levels. Um, We're really thankful to have you. Um, I'd love to be able to meet you. Please come up, introduce yourself, say hi. Um, But you're going to gain from this message. I I think you're going to get to hear the gospel and hear a lot about what we believe. But I have to confess, the target, if you will, of this sermon is the family of Heritage Christian Fellowship. And maybe even more specifically, just people that are committed believers, maybe even been walking with Jesus for a really long time. I think that you're going to see as we talk through some things, we can all, um, even from inside, maybe nod in agreement that there's a certain style or way of living that we as Christians seem to just be continually drawn into, even though we know the back end of that is always bad for us. So that's where we're going to be today. I'm going to start out by reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. I'm going to read through verse 18. That's the text that we're going to cover. And then I'm going to pray and we'll get going. So it says in verse 7, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what was once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, When they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. 
Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. Let's pray. God, I pray, Lord, that you even now, your spirit would blow through this place and awaken our minds, our souls. I pray, God, that you would be our teacher, that we would see what you're communicating to your church, that, God, you would just bless, equip, and build up your church. I pray, God, that we would be humble before your word, willing to hear what you have for your church. And I pray, God, that we would be changed, that even as verse 18 says, from glory to glory, we are being molded into your image. And so I pray, God, that we would leave this place closer to you than when we came. And so, God, I pray specifically, Lord, that your spirit would speak through me, that, Lord, you would use me in spite of me, that, God, you would direct words or shut words up that are not fruitful for your people, and that, God, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight our King and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So guys, I have to do a little bit of backtracking, so hang with me for just a minute. It's gonna seem a little bit monotonous, a little bit, we just did this last week, but we cannot go into this text today without reiterating what we talked about last week. Everything hangs on it. Chapter three of 2 Corinthians, Paul is playing a major and important comparison between two things, and he refers to them as the old covenant and the new covenant. And last week we talked a little bit about this, but we gotta reiterate this. This is a big, big deal. You cannot understand this passage without understanding the difference between the two. The old covenant is given to us most visibly in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, the people of Israel had been delivered from slavery in Egypt. God heard the cries of his people. He saw the slavery that they were in. And so he sends Moses as his mediator, and he has this famous showdown with Pharaoh, and God delivers the people of Israel from slavery. They make their way across the Red Sea. The water comes, delivers them from Egypt's army. And then they're making their way through the wilderness on their way to a land that God had promised them. Along the way, they come to a place called Mount Sinai. As the people gather and camp around Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain of Sinai and he meets with God. Now there's something interesting that had been taking place over and over and over, and you can see repeated over and over and over through the Exodus story. Every time God's leading his people, he always starts out with, it seems like the same refrain. He'll start out by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You see that line come up over and over and over, reminding them who he is, reminding him of, this, of them of this gracious delivery that he had provided for them, constantly pointing back to this deliverance as he's leading them forward in life and in their growth. So they come to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai, and there God gives to Moses and enacts, if you will, the old covenant. Now, we, he gives him two different forms of law. He gives him the Decalogue, or as we more famously know it as, the Ten Commandments. And then he gives Moses ceremonial law, ritual law. That's all the ones you read in places like Leviticus and, and other areas where it's how they wash and how they would do different things and why they don't do this and why they do do that. A lot of ceremonial stuff. So there's moral law, the Ten Commandments. There's ceremonial and ritual law. That's the rest of the Old Testament law. But God gives these to him as part of the covenant. 
In this covenant, there is an agreement made between two parties. The, the format used in Exodus is a very common format used throughout the world, actually, at the time of uh, the Exodus story. It was referred to as a suzerain vassal covenant. A suzerain is an ancient word that refers to a leader or a rural, a ruler, excuse me, and the vassal is the subservient, the, the lower end party, if you will. And in that kind of covenant, the person who's the ruler is saying, this is what I'm going to do for you. In return, you will respond and uphold your part of the covenant by fulfilling this and this and this and this. So there's an actual agreement going on. Later this afternoon, I'm going to go up into the Applegate Valley and I'm going to be doing a wedding. There will be a covenant ceremony that takes place in a wedding that says, I promise to do this and this and this and to never leave you even if this and this and this. And both parties will do this, Right. That really has its roots in that same type covenant. That's what goes on in the book of Exodus in the Ten Commandments. And even in that, God says to him at the very beginning, at the beginning of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He's continually reminding them about his goodness. And so he establishes this covenant. You see sort of the framework of it in Exodus 19. It says, the Lord called Moses up the mountain and he said to them, This you will say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and how I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came down and he called the elders together and he set before them all these words that God had commanded him. And all the people answered together and responded, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. That's in Exodus 19, the very end of the chapter. And so he comes down, this is the covenant. This is what God's going to do for us. And this is what God has us to do in response. And the people agree. That's called ratifying a covenant. So an agreement has been made between these two parties of what each party is going to do within the boundaries of this covenant. And so when we read the 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20, that's just the details of the covenant. And it starts off the same way. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt make no graven images, whether it be of earth or under heaven. And he goes on and on. He lays out the terms of this covenant, the moral law and the ritual law. The response to that is God saying, I'm going to make you a treasured people. You will be feared among the nations of the earth. I'm going to drive your enemy out of the land that I'm giving you. You will be a fruitful people. You will be a blessing to the rest of the world. And you see the terms of this covenant. And the people have responded to the covenant by saying, all that you say, we will do. And so when Moses goes up to get, if you will, the contract to be signed, the Ten Commandments given on the tablets of stone, He's not even gone more than a few days when they already break the terms of the covenant. And they do it in a horrific way. You guys know the story. Aaron is second in control. He's down there. The people of Israel have been gone for a while. And they start, or excuse me, Moses has been gone from the people of Israel up on the mountain. He's really at that point only been gone from them maybe a day or two at the most ever. Now it's turning into weeks. He's going to be gone for 40 days. And so while he's gone, they start to freak out a little bit and they say, okay, we got to do something else. We need a new plan. Our leader's gone. And so Aaron says, all right, bring your gold. And everyone brings all this gold. They melt it down. They make a golden calf. And then they say one of the most horrific things. Aaron presents the calf to them. And how does he present the golden calf to them? He says, 
this is your God which delivered you out of Egypt. It's an unbelievable act of rebellion and sin. These are the people that had just agreed, whatever you say we will do, and right off the bat they break the first two instantly. You'll have no other God before me and you'll make no graven image and worship them as well. And guys, this becomes the pattern for the people of Israel that really sort of spirals worse and worse, frankly. This is Israel history. Read the book of Judges and you see it played out really, really clearly. It's this idea that Israel makes these resolutions. We will be these people. We will follow this covenant. We will live according to these words. And then rebellion and failure. Then they are disciplined by God. There's a period of repentance, and then there's a new resolution. Therefore, we will now do this. And so you see this, especially in the book of Judges. It's really the theme of the whole book. You see them over and over. We are going to be the people of God, and we're going to live, and we're going to honor God. And then they, they're faced with difficulties, whether it be invading armies they're afraid of or just life in general. And so this resolution that they were so fired up about begins to wane. And so they fall into sin. They fall into idolatry. They begin to depend on other gods. They begin to worship other gods. God loves them, so he disciplines them. He's not willing to let them be lost to these false gods that can never provide. And so they go through hardship and discipline, but in the end, they come back around and they repent. We're sorry, we're coming back, and we will never do this again until tomorrow. And that's kind of the way it seems. And you go through all of the Old Testament, And you read the story of Israel and you see this pattern happen over and over and over. The worst part, though, is it seems like in a lot of situations, the rebellion seems to get worse and the repentance seems to get farther and farther apart until you get even into the days of the prophets. And there's a king named Josiah who's in control at the time. It's in the 600s BC. And at that point, it's as if they've just completely even forgotten about God. Because this king, Josiah, not following God, not seeking to honor God, but sees the temple and he's like, you know, the temple's kind of run down. What are we doing with that thing anyway? It's not looking really good. I tell you what, call the high priest and the high priest comes in before King Josiah and he says, here's what we're gonna do, man. We're gonna freshen this place up. I want you to remodel the temple, make it look really nice. He's just building up his kingdom. He says, this is what I want you to do. Go remodel the temple. So the priest goes into the temple and he's cleaning it up. They're remodeling, they're doing all this renovation and he's comes into like, I don't know, a closet, a crawl space, something, and he finds all these scrolls, pulls them out. Like, what are these? It's the Bible. It's the actual Torah, the law, the, the terms of the covenant that people of Israel had agreed to God. This is how we will live. That's the terms of the covenant that they had agreed to. But they don't even know it anymore. Like they've lost the word of God. They're not reading it. It's not being opened up. They didn't even know that they had it. That's how much God's word has been lost. And so this priest finds it and he's like, what is this? And he brings it to the king's attention. And King Josiah, he became referred to as a, the reformer of Israel because he sees this word. He sees the contract, if you will. He sees God's terms. He's reminded of what God has done for Israel in the past, the deliverance, that he is the God that brought them out of Egypt. And he repents, Lord, we have abandoned you. We've turned our back on you. And he enacts all these massive sweeping reforms all over the nation. Laws saying, get rid of all the idols, get rid of all the false worship, we are coming back to who we're supposed to be. And he is on fire, fired up. We will serve the Lord. And it lasts for a while. 
But by the end of his reign, he's right back where he was again. All that passion, all that zeal, even all the extra laws he made to make sure they follow God's law didn't pan out in the end. And in the end of his life, we see another prophet of God being sent to him who says, the Lord says that if you don't listen to him, the Lord that sent me to tell you, if you keep on fighting against God and keep on ignoring God, you're going to meet destruction. And Josiah doesn't repent and he's killed on the battlefield by the enemy. This is a pattern that we are very familiar with if we're being brutally honest. This pattern of, I'm going to be this kind of person. I'm going to serve God and I'm going to honor God and I'll never do all that stuff again. And I'm going to do this. And we are fired up. And then the next thing you know, as time goes on, we end up in a position like, man, I swore I would never do this again. And maybe we experience the discipline of God. Maybe it's through a hardship that we become aware of where we are. And so we repent again, but we swear, I am not going to do this again. I'm going to be different. Can anyone relate to that story at any point in their life? This is kind of the human condition, is it not? This is what we've been. And so this is the case. But the good news is that during the time of Josiah, during that period when Israel was failing again, God raises up a young prophet by the name of Jeremiah. And he speaks through this prophet, and this is what he says in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, the covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. He says, I'm gonna do a completely different work. Not like the old covenant that they couldn't keep. I'm gonna do something new. Instead of tablets of stone, instead of scrolls, I'm gonna write my will. I'm gonna write my word inside the hearts of my people. And, and there's incredible advantages to this. It's a radically different covenant. Number one, because when he says, this is the covenant I'm going to make, there's only one set of terms. They're on his side. There's no other. And I will do this if you do this, this, this. There's none of that. It's not the same covenant in the past. It's a one-party covenant. This is, I'm going to do this. If what? No, that's it. I'm just going to do this. This is what I am doing. And I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. I am the Lord that always keeps my word. This is what I'm going to do. It's radically different than the older covenant. And it's also radically different because there's more explanation given through another prophet named Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. And he says it this way. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and listen and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. It's completely different. He doesn't say, I'm going to put my spirit in you if you will be careful to obey my statutes and walk in my rules. No, he says, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to change you. And by my spirit that I place in you, I will cause you to walk in my ways, to be able to obey my rules. It's, an it's just radically different than what had happened before. Because before there were all the rules and none of the power to actually accomplish any of them. 
because it was all surfacey behavior. Do this, do this, do this. But the problem isn't the outward actions. The problem is that we have sinful, rebellious hearts. And so no matter how much we determine we're going to do this, over time, our heart seems to just wear us down and we get pulled away by other affections and pulled away by other interests. And the next thing you know, but then God says in this new covenant, I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to give you the power to live in this way. I'm not going to hang my relationship with you based on how well you do. I'm going to have a new relationship with you. And because of that relationship, you're going to do amazing. That's the new covenant. Does that sound pretty good? That's a good covenant, right? I mean, can you imagine? Imagine just the difference in that, that performance-based, I can't, I can't, I can't. And then suddenly he comes in and says, no, I'm just taking you just simply because I love you. I'm going to change you on my own. What about all this stuff that I have to do? I'm going to take care of that too. I'm just going to love you. I'm just going to bless you. You are mine. Think about this, guys. The creator of the universe says, you're mine. I don't deserve it, I know, but I love you. But I can't possibly earn this. I know, that's not what I'm asking of you. You're mine. I'm going to put the very spirit that hovered over the waters of the deep when God created heaven and the earth, I'm going to put that spirit in you. Are you kidding me? Anyone in? Right? Or, or go do all this stuff, and if you do really well, then I'll be your God. Um, second covenant, please. Right? Now, this passage right here, 2 Corinthians 3, is Paul holding up a comparison between these two covenants. And his overriding point in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is to say that the new covenant is infinitely better than the old covenant. He says that it has so much glory, it's as if the original covenant had no glory at all. And just by way of disclaimer, is the law good? It's really good. It's perfect, actually, the scriptures say. The problem's not with the law. The problem's not with the terms that God puts out. What's the problem? It's our hearts. We don't have the ability to live that out. We're sinful and rebellious and we can't do what we are called to do in that covenant. The problem's not with the law. The the law is perfect and beautiful. The problem's with us. And so Paul's idea, his plan in this particular chapter is to hold these two up and to say the new covenant is so much better that it makes the glory of the old covenant look as if it never had any glory at all. It's as if this is made to nothing because this is so much better. So he says in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 3, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, ministry of righteousness must far exceed its glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So that's Paul's point. Look, the new covenant is amazing and it's way better than the old covenant. Would you agree, Heritage? Do you believe and are you thankful that God has given us a new new covenant by which we can have relationship with him and come before him that is not dependent on every little detail and how well we do? Are you thankful for that? Do you believe that the new covenant is infinitely better and you can't even imagine wanting to go back and be part of an old covenant? Do you agree with me in that? Then here's my question to all of us. Why do we keep going back to the old covenant? Why do we keep doing that? We do it over and over again. 
The new covenant is infinitely better, and yet we continue to drift away and go right back to the old covenant that was there before. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. In the story, it says here, uh, Paul uses this example of Moses and this veil and this fading glory. Um, The scriptures tell us in Exodus 34 that when Moses came down from Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone or it glowed because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. So Moses, when he goes up Sinai to get the terms of the covenant and comes back down to greet the people, by being in the very presence of God and near the glory of God, his face is just radiating. It's just glowing, reflecting God's glory so much so that when he comes back down the hill, the people see him and they just start to freak out a little bit. Like what is going on there? And it says that whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak to him, he would remove the veil until he came out. So he would put this veil on because people were freaking out and it would separate them. So he would go up the mountain, take this veil off and be in the presence of God. As he would come back down the mountain, he would put a veil on. It would hide this glory from the people and kind of separated them from this. But here's the catch. Paul says even here in our text, that glory didn't last. So he would go up the mountain, he's in the presence of God, he comes down the mountain, he's glowing, having been in the very presence of God, but that that glow didn't last, it didn't stay around. And it says in verse 13 of our text here, Moses would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze upon the outcome of that which was being brought to an end. The glow's fading over time. And so he puts this veil on and it hides it so they can't see that. Most of us have probably, if you've been walking with Jesus for any considerable length of time, you've experienced this before. Anyone here ever grow up going to any form of church camp? Raise your hand nice and high if you have. Church camps, right? So I grew up Southern Baptist back in North Carolina, and I went to these denominational church camps sometimes where you wouldn't be the only church there, and there were these big, just gigantic camps that we would go to and you would meet people from other churches and all this kind of stuff. And, and they were great. You, you know, flipped canoes over and you, you know, all that kind of stuff, swim, archery. I'm church camp was just awesome. I loved church camp. And I had a thing called, maybe some of you've heard of it, RAs, Royal Ambassadors when I was a kid growing up and we would go to RA camp and it was just awesome. It was, it was just had a blast, but everything that you did in camp was aimed at and culminated in a pinnacle that always happened on Thursday night. So if camp was on Monday and camp ended on Friday, the peak of camp was designed to be Thursday night, Thursday night camp. And this is what would happen. So you are exhausted. You've been up early, up late, all week long, running, playing, jumping, climbing trees, all this kind of stuff. You've just been going, 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 going. And now it's the last night of camp and they would bring everybody in and they have the big bonfire or something like that. And the guy plays this music, the guilt tar, you know what I mean? The guilt tar. And a guy would get up here and he would give this message to the kids about your life. What are you doing with your lives? And he would do this invitation. And all of us, man, you're just crying just and over and over and every single year. Rededicate my life to Jesus. I'll never be the guy that I used to be. Anyone come forward if you want to rededicate your life to Jesus. I'm coming. I'm coming. Just everybody's like running forward, man. That was church camp. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Thursday night church, can I get an amen for Thursday night church camp? Right? And it was awesome. 
Parents loved kids that come back from church camp. Those first few days when you get home, they're like, I will send you to camp again tomorrow if I could. That was amazing. He's like cleaning his room. He's washing dishes. He's saying yes, ma'am, and no, sir, and all that kind of stuff. Parents love church camp kids right after church camp, right? So how does it work, though? Well, it works for a little while. But, but the very fact that every year we're rededicating our lives at church camp kind of says that, well, we didn't exactly pull that off over the last calendar year, then did we? But we do that over and over and over and over. We have those huge spiritual highs. And we come home fired up like Josiah, glowing like Moses. But inevitably, we couldn't pull it off. It didn't work out. It was all about self-effort. And this is what I'm going to do. And this is a very common human experience. It was Josiah's experience, Moses' experience, Israel's experience, my experience. I'll give you a little window into what a nerd I was. In sixth grade, I started wearing uh, like slacks, ties, collared shirts, all this stuff to school. It was part of the Jeff Hensley Dress for Success initiative. And so what I did was somewhere along the line, I had heard that thing about dressing for the job you want and taking life seriously. And I got all fired up like, yeah, I'm going to be somebody. I'm going to do something. And I was a Baptist, so we had lots of ties and shiny, uncomfortable shoes. And probably in that day, it was those pastel ties that are like knit and they're cut off, you know, like flat at the bottom, those kind. You'd suit jacket, you do this, Miami Vice, that kind of thing. It's an interesting blend between the world and church. But anyway... So I, I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And so I got up one morning to go to school, sixth grade, no joke. I put on the fancy shoes. I put on the slacks. I put in the tie. This is the new Jeff, new and improved. This is what I'm going to do. And it lasted for about 10 minutes once I got to church or once I got to school because I encountered a culture that was very different than the one I had just determined I was going to be a part of. And so people were coming up to me like, dude, what's with the tie? Why are you dressed like this? And right away, threw mom and dad under the bus, lied and bailed on the new Jeff initiative. I totally did. I can remember it clearly. I was like, uh, 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 and my desire to be accepted completely outweighed any desire to actually fulfill that which I had determined I was going to do. So no joke. I said, um, I, I have a doctor's appointment today. My mom made me wear this. <laughs> and I never wore the suit and tie or never wore the tie thing to school anymore. And I got questions all day long. And I caved over and over and over and over. That's what we're talking about here. There's this reality about old covenant living. It is always going to let us down. We will never be able to perform it. And yet we keep trying this. We keep being drawn back into the same thing. I will do this and I will do this. And Paul is saying here in this text that this old covenant living versus living in the new covenant that God has provided has some really serious consequences that I think a lot of us will relate to. Let me give you some examples. Here's some results just from our text of old covenant living. Number one is this. I'm just going to give you three. Old covenant living hardens hearts and minds. Look at verse 14. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. When we choose to live by old covenant, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, self-determination, effort, all of this stuff. The end result of that is, for one, hardened hearts and mind. It does this in one of two ways. Um, one of them is because we can't possibly do this and for many people, they just end up giving up. And so this is what I mean by that. 
you'll get those who go, man, my life is a mess. I'm, I'm dealing with all these situations. I've gotten myself into this problem. And then they hear about Jesus and they go, man, that's what I'm going to do. I'm at the end of myself. I'm going to give this a try. And so then they end up turning and repenting. But rather than turning to Jesus, they turn to self-effort and self-work. They turn to old covenant. I'm going to live like this and I'm going to do this and I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to chew. I'm not going to do any of those kinds of things. And, and so they change. And then when inevitably they fail, which they will, well, what a lot of people do is at a certain point, they just get frustrated and they go, I, I can't do this. What's the point? And then they'll say things like, I tried Jesus. It just didn't work for me. You didn't try Jesus. You tried you. You tried to be good. You tried self. You tried, I am going to be good enough so that God owes me a better life. If I live like this, then God will do that. And so I'm going to take it upon myself to start doing these things. But the problem is, is that your heart does not have within it, apart from the spirit of God, the ability to pull any of that stuff off. The whole book of Galatians points to this. Paul's saying the whole point of the law, as perfect as it is, was never to save you ever. The law cannot save you. The rules and morals and all that stuff, all of that was literally designed to point out to you the fact that you can't do it and you need a savior. But for some people, that was all they knew about Christianity. Christians do this and this and this. Christians don't do this and this and this. So they go, well, my life's a mess, so I'm going to do it. And then when it doesn't fail and they end up giving up, they go, well, I tried Jesus. It didn't work for me. And that's not trying Jesus. And then the other part is that is if you actually pull some stuff off, you become hard-hearted and just like a religious snob to other people. And this is why. You start feeling good about yourself based off of the things that you are doing well and the things that you are resisting, the victories that you are having in life. Oftentimes that blinds you from the things that you really are struggling with in other areas of your life. And you become this whole comparison game. Well, I don't drink. Why is this person? Why can't they just do that? And I do this, why don't they do that? And it leads right into Phariseeism. That was the other effect with Israel. You either go the Josiah's time route where you just forget about God altogether, or you become the Pharisees who become really good about doing this and not doing this and become known by the moral rule, but their heart was far from God. And so what did they become? Hard-hearted, cold, known by legalism and rules, no grace whatsoever. So that's one of the results. Old covenant living hardens hearts and minds. Number two, old covenant living causes people to hide. Old covenant living causes people to hide. So Moses, he puts on this veil. Verse 13 tells us, like Moses who had put on a veil to cover his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Okay, so if you try this out, like from now on, I'm gonna be this kind of Christian. I'm gonna do this kind of stuff. The first possible result is you get hard-hearted. You become, if you will, the older brother in the prodigal son story. This says, well, why are you throwing a celebration for him? I've been good. I've done this and this, and no one's done that for me. You become that kind of legalistic guy, or you become the person who hides things. So Moses, he's got this glow because he's in the presence of God, but as he comes back down the hill, that glow starts to fade off, right? So it says here in this text that one of the reasons he put the veil over his face was to hide from the people the fact that the, the glory was fading. And we do that really well in Western church culture. Because what we do is we've built a lot of our church culture based on the fact that this is the kind of people we are, very old covenant style. We live like this and this and this, and we don't do this and this and this. And so then what happens, you paint yourself into a corner, and when you start to fail by living according to that old covenant, and we all will, 
Well, you can't tell nobody. You can't let that cat out of the bag. And so what people tend to do is fake it. Put a facade up, hide the things that we're struggling with, make it look like we've got everything under control. And the problem is that doesn't get anyone anywhere. I mean, number one, for the unbeliever who comes in, if, if they are seeing this continual facade of people who have it all together and follow all the rules and never make mistakes, never struggle with anything in life, then the first thing they're going to think is, well, I certainly don't fit in here. And then the other end of that is, the reality is we all struggle with stuff in life, right? Right? <laughs> okay, just making sure. We also, like the smoke knocked you guys out or something, I don't know. But we, we all struggle with things in life. But if the church... One of God's vessels of this is how we work through things in life. The church is a means of sanctification. The church exists that we together might grow and work through things. And if that's the purpose of the church, but instead we come in and fake it and try to make it look like we've got everything together, your heart's still sick. You're still dealing with stuff, but the mechanism by which God's given you to deal with the problems in life and walk through things, you've just taken it completely out of the equation. Because you can't talk about what you're going through. What if I get judged, man? There's legalism involved and all these sorts of things. I have to pretend like I have all that together. And so we end up faking it and we remain sick. So the outside people that don't know Jesus don't get to come in and experience the deliverance of God. And the inside people who do know Jesus aren't allowed to grow and become more like Jesus because we're hiding all the things that God wants to use to work us through so that we can become more like him. And then the third thing is this, old, custom, old covenant living causes separation from God. Look what, God. look what Paul calls it in verse nine. If there was glory in the ministry of what? Condemnation. And look at verse seven. Now if the ministry of what? Say it together. Death. That was not together at all. <laughs> Mercy, I'll move on. Paul refers to this Old Testament style of, I will frame my Christianity around how well I live up to these different standards and putting that emphasis on this old covenant. If I live like this, God will do his part. He calls it the ministry of condemnation and the ministry of death. Now, why would he call it that? If the law is good, why would Paul say making our emphasis living according to the law a ministry of death? Well, here's why. Here's what happens. You come back from church camp. You've been struggling with whatever the case may be. And so you come before God and you say, I will never do that again. I am all in. I am with you. I'm going to serve you and follow you. And this is who I'm going to be from now on. And then you inevitably fail. And so you go through some stuff in life and then you return. I need to come before the Lord. I need to ask some help. Let me ask you, when you come back again, knowing that you just failed on the promise you just made him, are you coming in bold? Or are you coming in a little timid? You're not coming in bold. Oh, I was just kidding about that last one, God. Just forget that. But anyway, listen, here's what I need. No, not at all. Don't, don't we start those sorts of prayers out all the time? I mean, think even in the Catholic tradition, how do they start out? Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been how long since my last confession? Like right away, you're making excuses for the failures. And so when we come before God, what do we do? We say things like, Lord, I know I don't deserve to ask you for this. It's a good position to be, but it's reality. That's the way it is. Lord, I know I said I would never, and I'm so sorry, but I need help here. And for a lot of people, here's what happens. The next time you come back, you get a little more timid. And then the next time you come back, you get even more timid. 
And then you get to a place, many people do in life, where they feel like, I can't go. There's just too much water under the bridge. You know, there's a ton of people out here right now that aren't in church this morning, not because they don't believe in God. Actually, most of them do. But there are a ton of people out there that aren't in a church today worshiping God because they feel like there's no, they'd have to clean themselves up first and there's just too much. I can't come in there. I can't go be a part of those people. I'm nothing like them. I have sinned so much. How could God use or want me? And over time, that will separate you from the grace of God. That will absolutely separate you from the grace of God. My favorite, probably my favorite preacher today, if you're not podcasting him, you should. His name is Matt Chandler. He's from the Village Church in Dallas, Texas. He's president of the Acts 29 Church Planning Network. Good friends. We love the ministry that they do there. And he tells this story. It's a really kind of famous story. And and I would encourage you guys to go home and Google it later and see. There's a little three or four minute video of him telling this story that's become kind of viral in a lot of circles. And so you can Google it. Matt Chandler, Jesus wants the rose. There you go. I gave away the punchline. But go Google that later and look at it. But he tells this story of how when he was growing up, he, he and his buddies in college um, actually met this young gal that was in their class with them, and they developed this sort of missional relationship with her. She doesn't know Jesus, not a believer. She had a child from a, an unmarried, she was unmarried, got pregnant, so now she's got a baby, and she's a single mom. And then they found out later that she was actually involved in an affair with a married man at the time, and so there was a lot of stuff going on in her life. And he and his friends just decided they're gonna take her under their wing And they're just going to try to teach this gal over time about Jesus and kind of bring her along. And he had a friend that was playing in a band, and there was this big event going on. It was um, some sort of big purity rally that goes around throughout the country at the time. Save yourself, something like that about sexual purity. And his buddy's band was going to be opening for this really well-known speaker that was traveling at the time. So he figured, maybe I can kind of get her to come to church with us because my friend's playing in the band. So they told her about it, arranged a sitter. She decided to come. And so they're sitting there in this thing with her sitting right there. And the guy came up on the stage, and he started preaching. And it was just horrendous because he started saying things, talking about sex and what it is and it isn't and shame and all these things in a way that was so not gospel centered. And the the main thing he did to kind of do his point is he took a rose. He said, you guys see this rose? See how beautiful this rose that God created? How amazing it smells. He goes, I want everyone to touch it and smell it and feel it and see this rose. And he kind of throws it into the crowd of, I don't know, a thousand people or so. Pass it around, pass it around. And he goes on in this sermon, and it was this this completely guilt-based, fear-mongering, don't have sex, you'll get a herpy on your lip, and stuff like that. Literally, that's what he's he's doing. And so he gets to the end of his message, and he's like, where's my rose? Where's my rose at? And some guy brings it up, and Chandler says, the rose was just destroyed. It's been handled by all these people up there. There's leaves falling off. It's all jacked up. It's just destroyed. And he holds the rose up and his crescendo to his sermon, the point of his sermon was to hold the rose up and say, now who would want this? And here's this girl sitting here who needs the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ so bad. And you know what that message says to her? God doesn't want you. You, Look what you've been through. Look what you've done. 
And Chandler's punchlines, he just wanted to scream out, Jesus wants the rose. That's like the point of the gospel, that those who could not possibly save themselves and those that had been wrecked by sin have experienced the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of our faith. Not about how well you did this. And look, I'll give the guy some slack. Look, of course this guy that's preaching, his intentions are good. Of course they are. He wants people to grow and to honor God in the way that they live. He wants them to avoid the pain that comes with a promiscuous sexual life. He wants them to be able to experience all that is joyful in following God and living in accordance with his terms. He wants all of that kind of stuff. But he's using guilt, shame, fear, and law. That's old covenant. That's do this so that... And it robs you of the very power to be what God has designed us to be. So what is new covenant living? Look at Paul's conclusion, verse 16. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The new covenant says this, it is the perfect sinless life of Jesus Christ and the fact that he pulled off the law perfectly that my dependence is on and my faith is on. I do not come to God based on my merit. I don't come to God going, hey, I can pray strong this week because I've been nailing it. And then the next week, I'm coming to God weeping and moaning because I've blown it all week long. Every time I come to God, I come to God on one basis and one basis alone, a completed work that Jesus Christ has already done. And that teaches me and proves to me that God's, how God feels about me never changes because God's acceptance of me isn't based on my performance, which is up and down, up and down, up and down, but God's feeling towards me, God's love towards me, and God's approval of me is based on a work that is done. It will never change. The way God feels about you will always stay delight because of what Jesus did. And that's the reality of the gospel. And so you go, well, okay, but Jeff, you can't just talk about that, man. Like, you can't do that. There's teenagers in here, man. Like, you got to say, at some point, the rules come in, don't they? Well, Paul actually says this in 1 Corinthians, and we've covered it once, but I'm going to read it really quickly to you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, verse 15, it's by the grace of the God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. It was the grace of God that is within me. This is what he's saying. He said, it's the grace of God that I am where I am. I was a wicked sinner, but at some point along the line, I had an experience with the grace of God and it changed me. He said, it's, it's, I am not who I used to be. God's grace towards me was not in vain. I experienced the grace of God and I was saved. And then at some point in pondering, how will I respond to the grace that God's given me? Paul makes the decision, I'm gonna work my tail off for Jesus. I have seen what he's done for me and I wanna do whatever I can to honor him, to serve him, to live in a way that glorifies him. And so he made a decision. I'm gonna start walking for Jesus and so a day at a time he's taken those steps. But then he says this, he finishes that verse by saying, but it was not I, it was the grace of God that's with me. And so this is what happens. 
I've been saved. I can't believe Jesus forgives me and he loves me in spite of me. I want to follow him. I want to do whatever I can. So I'm going to work for Jesus. And he takes steps. But at a certain point, he turned around and looked back and he goes, that wasn't even me. That was the grace of God changing me in my heart. And that's what Paul talks about when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, what we just read. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Gospel-centered, the word we're talking about here is sanctification. This, we are changing to be more and more like Jesus. We're turning from sin that trips us up. We're trying to not become the liar we were before. We might still lie, but by God's grace, we don't want to lie as much, right? But this is the idea. What Paul's saying is, look, this is a work of the Spirit of God. This is a result of the new heart that God's Spirit puts in our hearts. And so if we teach our children only about following the rules, rather than, as he says in verse 18, making our complete focus to behold the glory of God, then we have robbed them of the power to ever fulfill that which we desire of them to do. And so second covenant Christianity, new covenant Christianity is this. We just want to behold the gospel of Jesus. And the more we see what Jesus has done for us, and the more we understand how much he loves us in spite of us, the more we fall in love with him. God will capture our hearts. And then he's going to do the work over time. And he's going to change, and he's going to mold, and he's going to empower us to live. The Bible gives you no provision anywhere at all for you to go live the Christian life. None. But it says, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It is Jesus Christ living his life through the hearts of those who are his. And so Heritage Family, let me encourage you, don't fall into that trap of self-condemnation and self-effort. And now I'm gonna clean myself up because I messed up this week, but I'm gonna go to church tomorrow morning and I'm gonna sing, I'm gonna give, and that's gonna fix everything. No. You know what fixes everything? The fact that Jesus died for your sins, that your failure yesterday is already covered, and that your standing with God is dependent completely and totally on him. That's gotta be our mantra. That's what Christianity, that is the basics of our faith. And if we fall out of that habit, we're going back to old covenant stuff, which Paul says straight up, that's a ministry of death. That's going to kill you. That's a ministry of condemnation. You will be buried by condemnation. You will always feel like you don't deserve it. Do not be those who are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and then somehow think that it's our effort that will now prove to God that we were worth saving. But instead, be a worshiper of Jesus that is constantly in awe of the fact that he would come and save a wretch like us. Let God take care of the rest. Amen? Let's take an opportunity right now to do even that. Let's join me if you would. Let's stand on our feet and let's just take opportunity to worship Jesus for his grace. Lord, your word here says that the more that we behold your glory, the more we become like you. And so I pray, God, that the facades would fall even now. That, Lord, it wouldn't be about hiding or faking it or pretending to be something that we're not. But, Lord, even in these few short moments before we finish, that we might worship you in spirit and truth for the reality of your love towards us. For the Father's love toward us is great. So, Lord, may we just behold your glory and sing of your praises in Jesus' name.